The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient, and welcome to the latest Epsilon Theory podcast. Today, I'm joined by Salient's President and Chief Strategy Officer, Jeremy Radcliffe, Co-CEO and Chief Investment Officer, as well as Portfolio Manager from Broadmark Asset Management, a Salient sub-advisor, Chris Guptill, and of course, Dr. Ben Hunt, Chief Investment Strategist at Salient and author of Epsilon Theory. Hi, Ben. Great to see you. Thank you, Michael. Great to see you as well. Great to be back uh, here in San Francisco with uh, at least two of my favorite people, if not three. But uh, that was a that was a, a jab at, 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 at Jeremy, my <laughs> partner in crime here. So we, we've been uh, engaged in a little bit of uh, pre-podcast hazing of our, our newest guest, uh, Chris Guptill, and Jeremy's been playing the role. And this will be a reference that only 0.1% of the audience will get, but Jeremy's been playing the, the, the Richie Incognito role. Um, again, 0.1%, but it's, it's, a, it's a good reference. Yeah, Hazer in Chief. Hazer in Chief, that's right. Uh, we're hazing Chris Guptill. Uh, Chris is our friend, our partner. We've got him here because, as Jeremy was saying, uh, Chris is a, the, the rain man of uh, market history. And whenever I have a question about what it felt like, what was going on in markets on X date, I think, Jeremy, Jeremy, what would you say? It's like, yeah, just throw out a month and a year to Chris and he'll just tell you. Yeah, August 1983. And and Chris will tell you, well, this was what was going on in markets then. And and I, I know that what Chris can bring to the podcast is particularly important today because what we're wrestling with and what I want to talk about in this podcast is this phenomenally powerful narrative that has gripped markets in the wake of the U.S. elections where Donald J. Trump won. And, you know, we saw, we saw markets be limit down for a couple hours Tuesday night. By Wednesday morning, we were already flat, and, of course, we've been off to the races since then. And it's a story, it's a narrative. I'm not passing judgment on it because I... I I'm just fascinated by its impact and the way it's created. Does it dissipate? Where does it go from here? But it's a narrative of essentially we're off to the races. Uh, It's a narrative of tax reform, tax rates being cut. I mean, every day it seems I see another sell-side analyst piece that ups the ante on the billions of dollars in corporate earnings that are going to be augmented by the, the tax proposals, uh, tax repatriation coming back to the U.S., increased infrastructure spend, uh, all of this apparently magically without adding to the deficit, but, but, but hey, who's, who's paying attention to that? It's, um, it's, it's really powerful, and certainly we've seen that most prominently 
as rates have backed up. Uh, and it's that the rate of rate change that I think is particularly, you know, alarming is not too strong of a word. And again, that's why I've got Chris here because, you know, we were talking earlier about different periods of time. We we're talking about the, the Reagan narrative that came on and what happened with markets. So I, I wanted Chris here and I we'll, we'll go into, I think some kind of more fun aspects of this in a second, but, but that's where I wanted to start. Jeremy, did you have anything you wanted to? No, I can't wait to get back in the time machine to the you know early '80s. Yeah, let's go, let's go, Chris. It's over to you. Tell us the tale. So, uh, we were talking earlier in our research meeting today about um, you know the similarities uh, going back to when an outsider Reagan came in, and I, again, I'm I'm not suggesting. Donald J. Trump is Ronald Reagan. I'm not suggesting he's not, but uh, I'll suggest he's not. But, yeah, but okay. you go ahead. This, okay. The uh, the similarities uh, in terms of what was going on in in the country at the time, you know, was the great malaise uh, leading up to that. You know, we used to have to wear a sweater instead of turning up the heat. Yeah, Jimmy Carter, man. Yeah, yeah. and and so it, it was a lot of discontent beneath the surface and then uh an outsider came in and shifted to a very similar narrative now tax cuts uh infrastructure spending just getting the country moving again increased military spending yeah that's a big part of it mm -hmm. not worry about the debt exactly and unless you know you're david stockman but then you got thrown you got out booted. yeah so uh, I guess he's still he's still around. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so this those were the similarities. The the stock market again very similarly had a big uh, a big it had been rallying and then uh, reached a a kind of a euphoric peak in. Don't laugh, Jeremy. Uh, right around the first of December of nineteen eighty, <laughs> and and then the equity market went into a um, a bit of a pullback, and in the middle of uh, December of nineteen eighty, launched a year end rally, and that was substantially it, uh, because really the the you know one of the primary drivers of equity prices is interest rates and has been pointed out during that time frame interest rates were uh, rising and ultimately that 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 led to the the peak in equities and then went into a cyclical downturn and when did that when when was the 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 when did the peak peak? So what was interesting is you had kind of, um, as you're having now, you had this rotational advance uh, with different segments of the market peaking at different periods mm -hmm, of time. Mm -hmm. So uh, the S&P 500 didn't, uh, and the Dow didn't make much progress after after ele uh, the, the election, but the, the Russell 2000, uh, had another uh, another leg up into the spring of 1981, and then ultimately uh, equities peaked in 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 the summer. They didn't make much progress. They just traded in a range, and then you launched a, a, approximately a 25% drop into uh, 1982, all while uh, Reagan's policies were being 
were being uh, adopted, voted on, and passed. And the real again, the real driver was the uh, the very high and rising level of rates. The difference is rates were much higher then, sure. uh, but the other important difference is multiples were much lower. Yeah. So now you have very, very high multiples, uh, but much lower rates. But as you pointed out, it's the rate of change that has always, uh, in our work, uh, produced problems for the, for the market if, if that speed of the change is, is very rapid. Well, Ben, you talked. We were you were talking earlier today in a presentation. I was I was fortunate enough to uh, to hear you give about history rhyming. Yeah, uh, and and you mentioned that a lot in, in epsilon theory as well. Uh, so, what's what's your what's the view here from from you guys uh, on uh, on the Trump and the after effects? Is it something that's going to rhyme with Reagan, or is this just an interesting anecdote? So, uh, I'll, no, I'll, go. So the I, I I'm always careful about equating you know the past to the present the similarities of uh a shift in the political dynamic that that brought on changes that we hadn't seen uh again if you look back over the last uh eight years plus it's been a very slow growth uh environment that has favored large cap growth companies and those that paid a dividend, you know, were favored even more. That literally changed overnight. And you yeah. can see it going on. And, and, and so the economically sensitive issues, which were under-owned, are benefiting at the expense of the liquidation of, those, of that very crowded trade. And so that rotational process, unless the broader market picks up steam, is usually an end to a cycle, not a beginning. So my view is we're, we're uh, building a cyclical peak in equities. Love that. So, so here's where I think it rhymes and here where I think, think it doesn't rhyme. Where it rhymes is that we all want to believe. We all want to believe. And these markets, and I, I think I can speak for certainly everyone in this room, most of the people are listening, we've been stuck. We've been stuck this has been a it's been a the most mistrusted bull market in history because it hasn't felt real it hasn't been real frankly my perspective it's been driven by monetary policy we want to believe and so when there's a a, a coherent story that comes out i mean it, it's got some legs to it right i mean tax reform matters a lot tax repatriation matters a lot changing regulations can matter a great deal uh, so, I, so I get it. I get it. I think I think the chances of it coming to pass in the way that its proponents think it will is kind of a pipe dream. Uh, although I also remember that when Reagan came into office, you had Tip O'Neill. You had a you had a Democratic House, right? I also remember that uh, Obama's first term, you know, you had a, a filibuster-proof Senate, which Trump doesn't have. So so there there are there are differences and similarities, right? But I think the biggest way it rhymes. And this is why these narratives are so powerful. People want to believe. So here's where I think it's different. Where it's different, I think, primarily is that, you know, forget the 1980s. Just go back to the 1990s, even the early 2000s. The United States doesn't, well, it never existed in a vacuum in terms of its economy versus the rest of the world. But I think even more so today, more so than I, I think at any point in history 
at least in the post-World War II history, you know, we're in these big games of chicken, particularly with China, where uh, our policy doesn't or can't keep on going in a vacuum. And I'm thinking about what happens with the dollar. I'm thinking what happens with trade. These are the issues that I think don't rhyme so well with Reagan in terms of that, you know, can you accomplish these things, which to come full circle makes me agree with Chris that A, the rise in rates now looks injurious to equities to me. I mean, you know it when you see it, right, Chris? I mean, it's like beauty or pornography, right, is in the eye of the beholder, and I think we see it today. And the other way is it's what's happening with the dollar and what other countries are going to do in response to what's happening in the U.S. None of this stuff happens in a vacuum. Back in the 70s, 80s, that was John Connolly's famous line, right? The dollar, it's our currency, but it's your problem. Well, today, you know, the dollar is our problem, too, or at least the international responses to it are. So that was, that's my feeling. I see, I see where it rhymes. It rhymes in that we want to believe. But where it doesn't rhyme is where the U.S. is and its position in the world. Yeah, and, and I might add that let's, let's just say that, um, and, and, and we certainly, there are no guarantees, and, and it's going to be a lot bumpier getting all this legislation passed. But let's just say, as in the case of Reagan, he does get a lot of it passed. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people make the mistake that what's good for the economy is always good for the stock market. That's so true. You're absolutely right. Right. And so Say more you, about that. Yeah. So you could definitely have a period that you do have this cyclical uptick in economic activity due to all these uh, changes in policy. But one thing for sure that will do is continue to raise rates, which uh, is often, uh, I don't want to overstate, you know, using a term like lethal, but you can have uh, you can have in the case of 1987 a very serious stock market sell-off with no recession, no uh, no decline in economic activity, simply because you were you, you had an overvalued stock market and you had a rising rate environment, and and so you can go back in history and point to periods of time where you 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 did have rising rates and and a very uh, poor stock market, yet the economy was okay. So I want to hear more about 87, but I also want to go back to, when, when did the recession in Reagan's first term begin? Was that, was 81? Yeah, 1981. What, what, how did, what was the lead up to that, if you recall? What was, it was, ri- recall. yeah, it was, it was <laughs> rising rates. And so people, you know, point to, um, you know, Paul Volcker shoving that cigar in his mouth yeah. and, and slamming on the brakes as hard as he can, which ultimately not only lifted rates, but inverted the yield curve, which is, uh, which, and then caused credit conditions to deteriorate, which led to a, uh, a much deeper sell-off in, in the bigger uh, indices like the S&P, but was much more damaging beneath the surface. So mm-hmm. that um, that is so far what we don't have is, you know, the, st- the yield curve is pretty steep. steepening, right? Yeah. So, on, right. so at, in the case of 87, you had a steep yield curve, and yet you had an equity market uh, that fell out of bed. So so again, my point is you can you can you can have a, an economy that is uh, 
uh, actually improving in a very poor stock market, given what interest rates are doing. It feels to me, though, just let's get back to, to interest rates and that steepening yield curve, because it, it feels to me like a lot of what's going on is an unwinding of this massive overpositioning for a flattening yield curve, as opposed to something that's happening in the real economy mm. that suggests that we should have a steepening yield curve. Because I still look at global trade. I still look at the rest of the world. And I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sympathetic. And I know Jeremy's going to jump in here because he's, he's one of the, the, the last of the, the, the big, the long bond bulls. But I, I just... I'm teetering over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I bet you are. Yeah. Well, that's my, I mean, that's my question for you guys is on the rate side, you know, as, as we've talked about the, the BTFD, you know, by the, right, right, by the F and dip uh, mentality in the, in the equity market. That's what's frequently been, you know, over the last, you know, post, post GFC, that's been, that's been talked about quite a bit um, on the, on the rates market. Um, Yeah. BTFD has been the, been the mantra, Ben, in the equity markets post great financial crisis. Oh, absolutely. Right? Uh, but it's if you really look at the at the best BTFD opportunity it's been in rates for sure know, for the last 20 years. Uh, you know, every time you see one of these rate spikes, I mean, how many times we heard this in the last 5 years in particular? The end of the bond market, the oh, end yeah. of the bond bull go. market. Here it is. Off to the races, it's, yeah. it's done, you know, the the, the taper tantrum. We've had we've had five or six opportunities here, you know, for uh, you know where the where the the death of the bond the bond bull market's been you know been widely called. So is this is this the that. beginning? Is is this that? And particularly in light of of Chris, your your view of of a cyclical equity top here, because if it is, if we've got a cyclical equity top and we think we're and we think we're entering a higher rates period, I mean that is that's a potentially devastating scenario for uh, you know for balanced portfolios and really investors 60, of all 40? types. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's. There's no question in in my view from a sick from a, a long term perspective that the thirty plus year thirty five year bull market in bonds is over, and but it's not it's never a straight line. So uh, it'll be you know you'll you'll have I don't know where rates are going to top off here. I think it talk about a crowded trade and and getting unwound that that can put more upside pressure on rates than most people are believing at this point in time and uh but you know at some point in in the equity market in an equity market uh sell-off a legitimate sell-off then bond yields will come back down but the the combination of high multiples and rising rates is is just not a good combination for equities. So I was thinking while while, while Chris was talking about uh, you know Ray Dalio posted on his uh, Facebook page I think it was he, he said he was ringing the bell right to say all right just as Chris said I think it's over. Now to Chris's point you can bump along some sort of bottom for a long time years years. But he was really ringing the bell, saying he thinks it's over on the bond on the bond market on the bond market. That's right, and it it reminded me. This is the old adage, right? No, nobody rings a bell at the top, but sometimes people ring a bell at the bottom. Uh, and I think I think you've got to take yeah, you've got to take Ray Dalio seriously. I, I take Chris really seriously. Um, well, I, I I it's not only you know it's 
it's Ray Dalio, it's uh, Jeffrey Gunlack, it's um, Stanley Druckenmiller. Stanley for God's Druckenmiller. Sake. I mean, he was he was like he almost seemed suicidal, you know, in his global outlook just six months ago, and then you know, the Donald comes in, and all of a sudden we're like I say, it's off to the races. And I, I have a, I just I just don't get it. And maybe it's because I just don't have the perspective, and that's why I wanted to have to have Chris here. I don't know how real this promise of tax reform, tax repatriation, eliminating Dodd-Frank, uh, again, you know, I, I know those things have a reality to them. I, my personal view is not much, but gosh, I've, I've got to take these guys seriously. Well, and again, it's, 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 the, it's the perception and, and the unwinding of the crowded trade that can, and, and yields right now are at our, I think, a very interesting level. They just, you know, pop their heads up above where they were a year ago, which yeah. for the first time in a long time. So that's kind of, for all the closet uh, technicians out there, that's an important level. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, you know, this whole rise in rates, you know, it, it will take years. I mean, you'll, it's a stair step. You're going to go from, you know, we were what, 135, you know, maybe we go to three, three and a quarter back down to two, two and a quarter up to four, you know, it's, it's this gradual two steps up and one step down. Right. Yeah. Uh, rise in rates, much again, the inverse of what you saw, back in the early not uh early 80s when yields peaked and then you went into this it was a long slow uh movement that lasted many many years and and again it it, it you can go back to uh to me you know you go back to the 40s and 50s you know where you had this very slow rise in rates mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. ultimately accelerated in, in the 60s so it, it can start slow uh, as as the declining yields did in the early '80s, and then accelerated at the end. But this whole uh, this whole notion that I mean, if you just look, uh, who was it? Spain issued a 50 or 100 year bond. Yeah. Um, you know, good for them. I mean, it, it's to me again. I I'm I'm a stock guy, but I do I, I understand history. I, under, I understand how these long trends work, and then. When you throw on top of that a guy like Gunlock or Dahlia or Drunken Miller, you know they're they're the real experts. I know, but even Gunlock, I mean, I remember talking to him and you know a guy in his his shop and saying, "Well, when do you think you know interest rates will normalize?" And his answer was, "Not in my lifetime." And then all of a sudden now we're we're going up to it's, like four, it's, it's it's weird. It's been it's a, weird. It's been astonishing how quickly some of the some of the uh, perma. Yeah. Perma, perma bulls or bears, depending on what side of the you know uh, coin you're looking at, have changed their stripes uh, in this. And I and I tweeted something to this to this effect, Ben, la, you know, last week about you know if if all it takes for for you know uh, us to hit inflation targets is to elect Trump, you know, these central bankers have had, right. had it right. all wrong. <laughs> they got to they right. got to reevaluate everything, right? I mean, that's well, well and this is why I, I, I so a couple of thoughts. One, we are as humans, pattern-recognizing animals. That's what we do. And and I'm, and I'm going to tie this into the Italian vote. I know we don't like dating these podcasts, but I'm going to date it anyway. So the podcast, the we're recording this podcast in advance of the Italian vote over the weekend. Anti-status quo vote in Brexit, market goes down, BTFD. That was the right thing to do. 
anti-status quo vote united states we didn't except for you know if you're trading e-minis overnight maybe you were able to or your you know carl icon apparently said he put a lot of money to work overnight it was a btfd for a nanosecond and then it was just off to the races wednesday morning when i look at what is happening just in the the italian market the italian domestic stock market this week it's been been crazy up crazy up when i think even I, even with polls pointing toward a no pointing toward a a bad vote a bad vote an anti-status quo vote yeah. and and what what you know to anthropomorphize you know what markets do really well we are very trainable we're incredibly we 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 train ourselves really well and so we saw what happened with brexit we saw what happened in the US we're saying okay here's here we go with italy another anti-status quo vote and that the result will be the same i.e. price appreciation not depreciation and look i, I got to tell you that that ain't the pattern with a with a with a no vote in italy this is what i like to call a humpty dumpty moment where all the ecb's horses and all the ecb's men and women can't put that eggshell back together again if that renzi government goes away and you have to have a bail in of italian banks is you know you think italy sticks around for that i i don't i think it's not just the end of the beginning i think that is the beginning of the end for the euro and if that happens where you have ultimately you get a credit freeze out of that and the reaction that we get from china with a strong dollar and the like growth growth global growth isn't three and a half isn't four percent it's it's zero it's zero i don't care what's happening in the u.s it's zero and and how, how does how do u.s bonds doing that they the, the rates aren't going up rates are going back down and the reaction of the central bankers, because they'll never come around to the notion that, oh, we just had to support populists like Donald Trump to get inflation expectations. That was the answer all along, like you were saying, Jeremy. That's that's so far away from their religion that it, it's not even a, a passing thought. Instead, it's, oh, we know, we'll do what we know to do, which is helicopter money and all the rest. So I, I, I. So you think you think that will ultimately gosh. they'll they'll have to resort to what they've been doing, you know, for the last several years. If we see uh, if we see a breakdown, despite what seems to be a changing political environment in both the U.S. and you know and in Europe, where people, where people are tired of it. it absolutely, like- absolutely, that's what I think. That's what I think. But I, I, I you got to take seriously these guys who are ringing the bell and saying this is this is different, and I, I, I don't get it. Wow! Hush, silence. Hush well, silence. Well, it's, prof- it's, well, it's what a pro- I used to say to my colleague uh, and dear friend Francis when I don't get it, I tell him tell tell that to the margin clerk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, that doesn't cash any checks. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Well, I mean, that's a profound. This, this it feels like we're on. You know, it does feel like we're at a turning point. And uh, you know whether the market's going to you know, continue with the with this this Trump narrative. Um, but but your point is this Italian. Your, your point is people the the pattern recognition on the Ital- on the Italian mar- on the Italian market with markets going up and it's going to be no big deal and it's another BTFD moment. Your point is you think that's that is a mistake. That's a case I th- of I th- mistaken th- pattern. Absolutely, recognition. I, th- I think the notion that. Uh, 
populist anti-status quo votes is a market positive is absurd. When that anti-status quo policy event takes place in a country that's at the core of a profoundly status quo institution like the euro. That's what I think. Um, particularly in an, in, a, in, a, in an area, Europe, where the banks are undercapitalized. They need money. Where's that money going to come from? Right? Germany's not going to give it to you because she's got to vote next fall that she's going to try to win. She's running again. Did you see that? She's running again. Yes, I did. I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, good Lord. I mean, know when to retire. And, and I say that with a lot of respect because I think she's a, a, a really both well-meaning and, and very accomplished politician. But, you know, you know be like John Elway. I, I mean, you know, win the Super Bowl and then quit. Don't don't hang around. So, I'm, you know, I'm a Joe Namath guy because you know, I'm from Alabama. He's in, in, <laughs> he was hanging around the box. He was Monday, hanging around. Monday night football the other night or Sunday night football. I, I, know, I can't was, remember. That was, that, that was awful. So this will recall our, our Richie Incognito joke from earlier, but. Um, yeah, what, what, what the pattern that I think is correct to recognize is the pattern of populism continues to crush team elite at every turn. And there's no greater global instantiation of team elite than the EU and the Euro. The apotheosis of team elite. It absolutely. That, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, if, if you think an anti-status quo, anti, anti-team elite decision is good news for markets in Europe, I think you're nuts. There, you heard it here first. I'm sticking with my bonds. <laughs> I got one more thing to, 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 talk, to talk about. Great. And again, it's, it's with, with, with Chris here, I want to bring this up. Because it's, it, it's not just about, I think, who was elected in the U.S. and the story and the narrative came around from that. But I I, I continue to be struck by the, not just the tenor of the campaign, but the way in which we as Americans, and I think this is true in most societies, absorb our information and make our decisions. And what I wanted to try to write about in this next Epsilon Theory note is this notion of uh, Gresham's Law, right? That this, this notion that, that, that bad money drives good money out of circulation, right? You, you're familiar with this, right? That, that the, when you had coins that were um, restruck or somehow, you know, uh, faked. Deformed. Or, right, deformed, yeah. yeah. All, all these different ways that people came up with to take up a silver coin and turn it into something that one silver and then pass it off. And, and the, the point of Gresham's Law is once that starts to circulate, the rational decision is if you have a real silver coin, you don't spend it. You, you, you hoard it. You keep it under the pillow. It, it goes out of circulation. So this notion that, that bad money drives out good. Now, I was trying to think of that from a, a media or a narrative perspective, and it, it really strikes me that bad news, fake news, let's call it, drives out good I thought you were going to go towards the cash, uh, the, you know, the recall of large cash notes in India and other and other places with that bad money driving out good comment. Yeah, that's that, that's another that's 
that's another topic. Right? No, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. No money. What happens when? What happens when they take all the money? Well, that's this this statist imperative, right? To uh, to, to to eliminate everything that they can't control and can't tax. I, I I think it's that's exactly what's going on. All right, sorry for the sidebar. What where were you were you no, were that's, to that's, fake? that's a whole other podcast we need to do. Yeah, it is. It is. Fake news. No, so. where where I'm going with this is when I'm thinking about the narrative and I'm thinking about Gunlock and these other guys really cha- going 180 degrees from what they've been saying. And, and and I have no reason to think they're being disingenuous with what they're saying. And yet, it's such a strange switch. And we live in a world where I don't think it's unreasonable to see, I'll call it conspiracy or, you know, talking your own book or whatever, however that, that plays out. It, it just it just makes me question. And I see the entire U.S. election and elections and other companies being decided on similarly, shall we say, you know, suspect narratives. Uh, and it what what I think is going on is that and this is going to sound strange, but but we're moving towards a, an era where geography doesn't matter very much anymore, where our 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 elections and our our, our laws around election, our institutions are based on these geographical districts, and that leads to our our, our electoral system where we have one past the first past the post, right? Fifty percent plus one wins that district, as opposed to countries that elect. On a, on a national scale, and they can have proportional representation. And what proportional representation always engenders are lots of political parties where a political party has a, has a specific uh, identity. It doesn't have to appeal to lots of people. It only has to appeal to that 5% or whatever the threshold is to get people elected on a national scale. And that so long as our media was again geographically based newspapers um even um i'll call it uh monolithic in terms of the national broadcasting agencies right we all got our news in the same way chris and i at least are old enough to remember you know everything stopped yeah yeah right yeah i'm not that old but but anyway (laughs) (laughs) there you go you're now you're richie Richie incognito And that has really changed both in our technology for how news is, is, is spread so that, it's, so that now you have very successful news, I'll call them organizations, but it's, but it's whoever has a website and it's like Epsilon Theory. You can create an audience that can create this, this, this critical mass. You don't have to convince everyone. You don't have to convince a majority, but you can really mobilize a group. I'll give you another example. It's like Survivor. So this is my cultural reference for the, my pop culture reference. Survivor used to be determined, the game, by these alliances. And alliances would stick for a long period of time, and one alliance would just beat down the other alliance until it was just the, the winning alliance left, and then they fought it out. Today, or over the last five years or so, the alliances have gone away in Survivor. It's these, these small, very amorphous voting blocks Right, that come together and, and, and shift apart at, at, at different points in time. With a, with a shorter half-life. Much shorter half-life, right? And, and with an organizing principle that is, 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 not, is not immediately clear, right? It's certainly not the organizing principle that the producers of the show set it up to be on, right? 
you know, when they do these all the different types of shows. So where I'm going with all this, 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 this crazy talk is, is, is I do think that there's something very fundamentally changed by that our technology no longer requires this reliance on geography for anything, for where we make stuff, for where we work, for the news we get, and that that disintermediation, to use that $10 word, in the way we consume information showed its dark side, but its inevitable side in this election cycle in the U.S. And that ain't going to stop. That ain't going to stop. And I think it has a lot of impact for how we think about markets because it allows these sort of narratives to take shape in markets as well as our politics. I think that's one of the big picture items that I don't hear anyone talking about, but I think is... um, really influential. Ben, I think that's a extremely eloquent way to just simply say it's rigged. <laughs> well, um, but, but isn't a lot of that the logical conclusion of the disregard for truth that we've seen over the last 10, 15, 20 years? Yes. For, you know, from a without a doubt. You were talking about the Bill Murray quote or you know earlier Oh yeah, that if that if if you lie to the government, it's a felony. But if the government lies to you, it's it's politics. Right, right. It's a great quote. Yeah. And, uh, and and look, the government's been lying been been lying for you know a lot longer than the last five or ten or fifteen years. But it just seems to have gotten more brazen almost every. Right, where they know. announce that this is our policy. This is communication policy, as the Fed calls it. You know what we to use the words for effect, rather than as a reflection of what we actually think or believe you know, what we might otherwise call lying in other circumstances. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just taken as a matter of course. And I, and I, and I do think it's a reaction to that, but, but, but more importantly, it means that no source of information, this is what I mean about the bad driving, currency yeah. driving out the good, no source of information is perceived as being good anymore. Because you have to assume if you're still in circulation, you, you, you must be as, as biased and, and bad as all the rest. Everything's tribal at this point. Everything's tribal at this point. It's all voting blocks. Interesting and scary. You, you picked me right up there, you guys. Yeah. Well, that's our job here. That's our job here. Michael, I'll turn it over to you. We've had a great time. Appreciate you. uh, Chris's first podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And and I got to say, you know, it's been a great pleasure working with Ben. And and he's been very helpful in in the portfolio management side of things. And he's one of the few academics I know that could actually make money. So uh, he's definitely (laughs) worth listening to. This is our dream team right here, Michael. I think so. Hunt Hunt and Guptill. Off to the races. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. Thank Thank you, Jeremy. Ciao, ciao.